and welcome to this episode of Faith in Politics. As always, your hosts are Bethan and Will. This episode, we have an interview with Steve Chalk, who is the founder of the Oasis Trust and leader of Oasis Church, Waterloo. However, before we move on to that conversation with Steve, we're going to start with a monthly musing by Methodist minister Val Reed, who is reflecting on the parable of the Good Samaritan and the question of service. Fifty years ago this summer, Apollo 11 blasted off to the moon. On board were three astronauts, Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin and Michael Collins. It was only when I watched a recent BBC documentary that I even realised there was a third man. Michael Collins stayed on the spacecraft, orbiting the moon, while the other two did the famous and glamorous bit, the first step, the iconic photos. That film got me thinking about the unfamous people in our stories, the ones without whom the narrative would be very different, but who are not the stars. Michael Collins. What about the innkeeper in today's Gospel reading, the story of the Good Samaritan? We know it is the story of the Good Samaritan, not the Good Innkeeper, but it was the innkeeper who did the ongoing day-to-day care for the wounded traveller. He was the one who took a risk on getting paid eventually. Thinking about his role got me thinking about all the other characters in the story too. It all begins with a question from a lawyer. What must I do to inherit eternal life? He knows the answer already, or at least he thinks he does. He can recite the commandment from the Torah, love God and love your neighbour. Jesus has the grace to tell him he's scored 100% in the Divine Scripture exam. But being a lawyer, he wants to justify himself. So he asks the $64,000 question, and who is my neighbour? Jesus tells us the story. And it's a story that's so familiar we hardly think we need to listen to it. It's a story of a man who gets mugged and robbed, two people who don't stop to help and one who does. Which of the three, Jesus asks, was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And of course we know the answer, it was the Good Samaritan, obviously. We know the moral too, go and do likewise. But thinking about Michael Collins and the innkeeper, the unsung heroes, got me thinking about the whole story. Because if the question is, who is my neighbour? There is surely more than one answer. And it's not as simple as stopping to help the guy who's been mugged. The story Jesus tells is a microcosm of society. It starts with an innocent traveller going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Or was he so innocent? That 18-mile road trip was notorious as a trading route and as a dangerous journey. Where there were traders carrying goods, there were also inevitably robbers. So why was our traveller putting himself in the way of possible harm? Was he so fixated on profit that he didn't take proper precautions? And why was he alone on such a risky trip? Who was his neighbour? And what about the robbers? Were they simply brigands with no respect for human life? Or were they people on the edge of society who had no other way to eke out a living? Camping in the arid desert that surrounds this road, excluded from cities and from their communities, desperate to survive in a society that doesn't even have universal credit, no food banks, no National Health Service. 
We meet plenty of people like this in the gospel narratives. And they are always people that Jesus will stop for, speak to, reach out to, heal. They are always people that Jesus wants to include, not exclude. Who were their neighbours? What about the priest and the Levite, the guys who didn't stop? Were they motivated by self-preservation, terrified of being mugged themselves? Were they wholly jobsworths, overconscious of the rules about not touching dead bodies because then they'd be ritually unclean? Were they just in a hurry with full diaries and other pressing tasks? It's hard to know what Jesus had in mind, but if I'm honest, I recognise myself in these two men. Sometimes I look back on my day and think, I could have done better. I could have been kinder. I could have bought a sandwich for that homeless man. But I had a meeting to get to. I was on my way to a hospital visit. I didn't know whether he was genuine. Who is my neighbour? And of course, don't forget that this is a story within a story. What about the smart Alec lawyer who asks the first questions? What are the rules? Who's my neighbour? Is he so insecure that he needs affirmation from a travelling rabbi? Is he genuinely concerned to understand the workings of God's economy? Either way, we know plenty of people like him. And we probably recognise something of him in ourselves. Amongst all the priorities in our lives, how do we know what matters? Where do we find answers to those eternal questions? Who will walk alongside us? as we reflect on these things. Who are our neighbours? So here we have an interrelated society, insiders and outsiders, victims and perpetrators, exploiters and exploited, those who help out of the goodness of their hearts and those who help because it's their job and those who don't help on this occasion, those who ask the questions and those who answer them. Aren't we all neighbours to each other? If society were less atomised, if we were less ready to judge each other, if we cared more about integrating the poor and the alienated and the violent and the overburdened, then perhaps the Jerusalem-Jericho road would be less of a dangerous obstacle course and more of a common pilgrimage. Perhaps go and do likewise gives us a much wider brief. What sort of society do we want to create? And how are we going to do it? Up next, we have an interview with Steve Chalk. Steve is the founder of the Oasis Trust and heads up Oasis Church Waterloo. And Bethan and, and Steve had a, a really wide ranging conversation and, and covered a, a ton of ground. And we hope you enjoy it and, and find it thought provoking. So today we are here with Steve Chalk, who's very kindly agreed to, to have a conversation with me today. So thank, thank you. you so much for being here today, Steve. It's great to be here. Honestly, it is. <laughs> in our very hot office. I'm very in sorry. your hot office, yes. hot, wonderful, sunny day. And I'm not in my office. That <laughs> makes a change, I suppose, <laughs> very often there. Um, so we're just going to start by talking a little bit about Oasis Charitable Trust. Mm. Um, I'm just going to explain what it is really briefly. 
Um, so you founded it in 1985. If any of this is wrong, please yeah, no, that's me, right. It's from La- your website. Last so. century, last millennium. <laughs> um, and over time, Oasis has grown into a large group of charities that deliver housing, training, youth work, healthcare, family support, and education in over 11 countries around mm. the world. Um, so I just want to start with why did you do it? Why did you create the Oasis Charitable Trust? Um, I, I. I think there's a thing behind the thing. The thing behind the thing is I'm partly Indian, partly English. My dad was really, um, my both my mother and father have died, but my dad was a really black Southern Indian, almost jet black skin. Mm. Uh, one of the darkest people I've ever met, actually. And um, he came to this country. My mum was very English, very pale, the kind of, person who goes bright red on a day like this rather than brown do you know blotchy and they met and they married and um a lot of my mother's fa- uh, family never spoke to her again because she'd married this black guy um so that's probably the thing behind the thing so my dad coped with all of this incredibly well he struggled to get work because of his color in those uh, y- years or at least he could get work but work that where he could use his head as well as his hands. Um, and as a result of that, we were a really poor family. I'm the one, you know, uh, oldest of four siblings. And then, uh, long story short, but I went to a dump school, secondary school. It really was a dump school. Um, uh, and um, it was the kind of school that you only went to if there were no other options for you. And I was a free school dinner kid, as you know, and all of those kind of things. But I fell in love with a girl who went to the girls' grammar school because I lived in Croydon, which ran a grammar system at that time. And I couldn't get to see her except by going to a youth club on a Friday night. So I started going to this youth club, which was about five-minute walk from where I lived, in a little old church hall. And she was gorgeous. I still know her, actually. And after about six months, she got one of her best friends to tell me that she would never, ever, ever go out with me if I was the last bloke on planet Earth. And that night, I wandered home between the youth club and and where I live with my mum, dad, brothers and sisters up this little street. And I was totally crestfallen. What was the point of my life? Was it worth going on? No, it wasn't, etc. And then halfway home I was walking up the side of a football ground actually Crystal Palace football ground in South London so just the length of the football ground separated this little church hall where I went on Friday nights from our house I decided that even if Mary Hooper didn't fancy me I was going to keep going to that youth club because they told me a better story about who I was than my school did they said my life was a waste of time effectively I'd never achieve anything pass anything do anything well they weren't picking on me that's the way we all were um, but in this little youth group, they told me my life had uh, purpose and meaning and hope and potential and that I could do anything if I put my mind to it. But my life was uh, the most valuable resource I had to use instead of waste. So wandering home, I thought to myself, well, even if Mary Hooper doesn't fancy me, that story is better than my school story. And so I'm going to keep going. Um, and then having decided that I decided this is rather 
ridiculous bit, but it happens to be true, I decided if I was going to keep going to that youth club that was run by a church, I'd best be a Christian. And if I was going to be a Christian, I'd best become a church leader in for a penny, in for a pound. I remember that thought rushing, you know, you're either in or you're up not. So I'm going to be in, I'll become a church leader. How old were you? I was 14. And that was why Mary Hooper didn't fancy me, I always like to think. She was 15, you know, and 15-year-old girls do not so Relish. much better than 14 year old yeah boys. exactly who they see as just children um and i decided that not only would i go to the church and i'd be a, become a church leader but when i grew up i was going to start a school that was worth going to that mm. taught you better a narrative about yourself than the one i had uh, though i couldn't use the word narrative then just a better story and and i was going to start a house for kids who've never been told they lo- were loved by anyone hostel and I was going to start a hospital that gave real good care because I grew up in Croydon where the hospital was well known for not giving good care Uh, so I got in told my mum this she had no idea what I was talking about but seemed to think it was all a rather wonderful idea and that's it so uh, another 14 years go by I'm 28 by then um, I trained in theology because that when I went back to the youth club they said well if you want to lead the church you better do theology and I got married. My wife's name's Cornelia. She went to the youth group as well. So even though Mary didn't fancy me, Cornelia did. <laughs> and so uh, that was good. And um, I was working for a little church. And I was working for a church, not a little one, actually. Um, and, and I began talking with Cornelia and with the church about, so how do I set up a hostel or a school or a hospital? And in the end, I left my job at the church um, took a chance. They let us stay in a, in a house they'd given to us for a year. Well, it was their house. They let us stay there rent-free for a year. And they said, you've got a year. We can't pay you. You're on your own. But we can give you free accommodation for 12 months. And after that, it's that. So go and see if you can do it. And that was the beginning of the Oasis Trust. And you did it. You said the, the, all of those things exist now. It was, it was agonising. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it took longer than... Uh, the first thing we set up was a hostel mm-hmm. for kids who were on the street. And that took longer than a year. But within a year, I'd managed to um, find ways of people supporting me until we got that done. And eventually we opened a hostel, which we still run, um, in Peckham. And uh, Cornelia said, let's call it Oasis. It's for young women, young adult women, all of whom have been abused in one way, exploited one way or the other. And she said, let's call it Oasis. And then we've simply gone on adding, so we school, um, lots of houses, lots of housing, lots of schools, um, lots of healthcare. Oasis runs 51 schools. Mm, 52, actually. 52. Yeah, it's going up all the time. We're building the 53rd school in Bristol. Wow. And planning the 54th. Yeah. So 54 <laughs> schools, uh, primary and secondary. Across mm. Does that include six forms? Yes, it does. Yeah. Um, and I wondered, that gives you an incredibly unique perspective on the state mm. of our educational mm. system at the moment. Mm. Um, what do you think about the state of our education system in the UK? I was I was going to say, if we get an educational system, I've not noticed it. <laughs> you know, so I, I think the problem is we don't have a system. We have several different systems that coexist and get in the way of each other sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the difference in philosophy between primary schools up to the age of 11 and secondary schools. Um, so a primary school is about my teacher 
my classroom, my friends, my chair, my coat peg, and it creates a sense of team. And secondary schools are a giant building where you shuffle around and there's lots of teachers and you go to the rooms, etc., etc. etc. And then some of our education teaches collaboration, but most of our exam system is about individualism. When we're training people for jobs that are all about collaboration and working in teams, I could go on, mm-hmm. you know. So, so I think we've got a long way to go to get a cohesive education system. And I think we've got a long way to go to think through what do we really believe education is? What do we really believe education is about? And I think there's a disparity between what most parents hope for their child and what they vote for when they get their league tables. Mm. <laughs> so we vote for academic success. And at the same time, we know that fulfillment in life isn't actually necessarily about academic success, but it's about grounding and character, mm. the ability to form relationships, make wise decisions under pressure, um, to stick with relationships, to be able to handle money well and not to be get drunk on fame or wealth or lack of it. And so, so we believe all sorts of things, but it gets muddled up because we think a good education is, well, they got five good GCSEs, so they're good. And then we suffer some, from some of the consequences of that. And let's sort of keep with the young, the young people theme for a moment. There has been a link made by many people about the link between budget cuts in regards to many things, social services and education, mm. and the increase in knife crime that we've seen in recent mm. months mm. and years. Mm. Um, considering your perspective within all these schools, do you mm. see that link? Well, all the facts and figures seem to point point to that. And then uh, I was listening to someone uh, the other day saying, you know, if you, the, the children's centre's money was cut 10 years ago and so you're looking at a generation that grew up without of that without that import i was just speaking at something this morning um on uh, to a group of um healthcare professionals battling with life in a tough part of the country and uh, they were talking about gangs and violence youth violence etc um and i used the example of someone in the uh, case in the news at the moment of this guy on the train who stabbed someone else 18 times and I said to them who stabbed someone 18 times I mean 18 times Mm. you keep on stabbing and stabbing and stabbing there's got to be a whole lot of anger inside you unresolved tension Mm. to do, do that you can understand someone swiping out at somebody to keep on going so I know nothing about that case except what I read in the press but I do know this that in my experience over these decades of working with the most vulnerable young people and older people the lack of love is the real core no one listens to me I've never felt loved and I don't necessarily mean by a mother or father. It's a wonderful thing if your mother or father loves you. But this sense of attachment, of unconditional love, doesn't need to be a biological link. If you've just got someone to invest in you, Mm. to listen to you, to really hear you, to be with you, 
I think that makes a lot of difference. And all the cuts, of course, strip that out. And where would you say the role of churches is and community organisations in in attempting to fill the gaps that are currently present in our system? Well, I tell you this amazing story um, as an illustration. So we took on a school in a particular part of the country and a really tough housing estate. And just down the road from um, our school was a Methodist church building. But the Methodist denomination had decided to shut it. And they decided to shut it because only very few people in their late years, in their late 70s and 80s, went to this building. They just couldn't afford to keep it open. They couldn't afford a minister, etc., etc., etc. So it was redundant to need. So the denomination chose to shut it. But the few people that went to it hated this. And the Methodist denomination really kindly loaned Oasis the ability to be able to use the building. And we used it as a centre for kids who couldn't sit in a classroom. They couldn't be educated amongst 30 other kids because they kept losing it. And, kept, you know, they were lovely, but then they fly off the handle and they were so disruptive. Mm-hmm. So we try not to exclude young people, but we try to include them and we try to find a way of including them. And we use this little Methodist church hall in order to include these these kids. So one morning I was there um, at this inclusion unit that we'd created and um, we'd put in a pool table and there were some desks and etc etc coffee a little kitchenette that was there. Um, anyway I arrived and there's a kid who was 12 who I knew was capable of serious damage to anyone and whose background was all about violence, which is why he was Mm. as he was, because of what he'd witnessed and seen, because his neural pathways hadn't been formed well. Anyway, this elderly man in his 80s, who was one of the Methodists, arrived, and they played pool together. It was first thing in the morning. And one of our staff, OS's staff members, said, watch this. She said, that kid... He loses it all that. He doesn't like to lose. If he loses, he loses it. And the old man's beating him. So this old guy, he's obviously played Paul a lot. And he's, you know, wanders around the table, staggers around the table. And eventually he pots the black. He's won. And the kid is holding a stick. And our staff member says, said to me, he could well take that stick and beat it over the old man's head. But the old man wandered round the table to him, shook his hand, put his arm round him, and they wandered off together to the kitchenette where the old man put the kettle on and made him a cup of coffee. And then I watched as they went over to the computer, sat down in front of the screen, and began a literacy course. We do literacy courses on, on computer screen. And they sat chatting. And that has stuck with me for, this must have been eight years ago. I'll tell you the story because it's probably the most powerful illustration I know of, of love. See, that kid, his dad was in jail. His mum had left him. He had no one. Everybody he was ever with was paid to be there. Social workers, teachers, probation officers, medical staff. Everyone he met, youth workers, All of them were paid to be with him. But this elderly Methodist man wasn't paid. 
he was there because he wanted to be. And I'm sure this young guy, young kid, couldn't articulate it like I just have. But you know, I know he knew that for once in his life, someone was with him who just chose to be there and wasn't being paid for it. That, I believe, is the love revolution. That is the investment unconditionally of time. And I think that the church is in a, an extraordinary position to be able to offer that as a service alongside education. And it's the thing that changes the world, love. And, you know, with, at the risk of boring you, I sat talking to um, one of the bosses of Ofsted just, um, uh, just a week or two ago, and I said, you know, we're, we're torn in our country, it seems to me, between two worldviews. One is an Aristotelian worldview. Aristotle has huge command over the way we think. And Aristotle was the person that said, you can only live life by living in a story. You can only do morality by living in a story. It's what's called virtue ethic. And he, he's the man who gave us these virtues, these great virtues. But Aristotle's greatest virtue, 350 years before Jesus, Aristotle said, you've got to live by virtues. And the greatest of all virtues is Sophia, wisdom intellectual capacity because you've got to master yourself and if you achieve Sophia wisdom knowledge intellectual capacity then he had lots of other virtues and they all lead to the last one which is the Greek word you translate magnificence uh, to be magnanimous a brave hero who uh, who engages others magnanimously all about self-control so along comes the Apostle Paul, who studied both Aristotle and was a follower of Jesus. And he's kind of saying, Aristotle, you're right. You've got to live your life in a story, a narrative. And it's got to have virtues. It's just you've got the wrong story and the wrong virtues. Because the greatest, uh, the greatest virtue isn't knowledge. It's not wisdom, intellectual capacity. The greatest virtue is love. Are we in a knowledge-based culture where we believe the greatest thing is to know a lot or the greatest thing is to love? I think these are clashing worldviews and we've never quite worked out which one we believe in. Let's, let's move on to Oasis Church Waterloo hmm. and the, the, way you, the way you do church. Hmm. As hmm. a church, it's uh, I don't know whether you'd use the term, but when I observe it, I observe it as a very politically active church, yes. not in regards to party affiliation, no. but in regards to real practical political Yeah, justice action. issues. Yeah, justice, lots yeah. of justice issues. Is that something that was intentional? When, or has, has it well, grown? Yeah, uh, it's grown. It's intentional, but, and it's grown. But, but the, the, the reality is, of course, that for, firstly, well, uh, when I began Oasis, um, as I said earlier, started a hostel, and these young women come to live with us. Now, this is social action. But you can either carry on providing rooms and meals and love for these women all your life until you die, which I hope we still do. We do. But there comes a point at which you've got to say, but why are they abused? Why have they got no money? Why is there no housing? Why is there not a safety net for them? Why can't they ever get any time with a social worker that makes any sense? Mm -hmm. 
So to use William Booth's expression, the founder of the Salvation Army, he said, in the end, instead of pulling people out the river, you've got to move upstream, find out where they're falling in and ask, why isn't there a bridge built? So social action always leads to social justice in the end. You've just got to go upriver. Yeah, you've got to go upriver. You're going to get to those justice issues, those policy issues. You're going to ask why, and that plunges you into politics, which Mm -hmm. is is right, the affairs of the people, the affairs of the city. And Tom Wright, N.T. Wright, years and years ago wrote a book, I can't even remember which one it is, but he was really helpful to me this donkey's years ago. He said, we've all got Jesus down as a preacher. He's a wonderful preacher. He said, he wasn't a preacher at all. Jesus didn't preach sermons and occasionally do things. Jesus did things, provocative things, things that upset people, political things. The whole time he was always having meals with the wrong kind of people, hanging around in the wrong kind of places, asking the wrong kind of questions. His whole life was an affront to the system, the way he lived. Go the extra mile, love your enemy, etc., etc. He lives differently and occasionally he stops and comments on why he's doing it. He was, said Tom, a political activist who sometimes gave a commentary on what it was that drove him. And that, I thought, that's liberating. That's the way I see things. And Oasis has done an absolutely phenomenal job of putting God and politics and social justice all in the same overlapping Venn diagram. In regards to other churches and people who might be looking to get their congregation involved in social justice thinking, mm. how would you, what advice would you I'll give? start with something easy. That's easy, you know. <laughs> so, so when I came to the church that you know as Oasis Church in Waterloo, which is in 2003, I began to work there. There were 10 or so people in the congregation. The building was shut all week except for an hour on a Sunday and um, uh, 11 to 12. And I said, why don't we open a coffee shop on Tuesday afternoons? I think it was Tuesday afternoons. And they thought this was terrible. Um, how could we do this? But actually, the truth is, it was easy. You know, you don't need many skills to open a coffee shop. This wasn't a smart coffee shop. This was a kettle, you know, and some biscuits. And and we used to open on Tuesday afternoon. Low skills, high impact. The church building is open you know, it, it looks like there's something going on because, of course, unless you're up early on a Sunday morning, it looked like this building had be em- been empty for years. Now it's open. People start coming in. Young mums started coming in for a cof- coffee because it's a poor community and there's a free cup of coffee or a near free cup of coffee and a chance to sit and their kids could run around in a, in safety whilst they sat and chatted. So they began telling us that, um, stories about, well, we need new swings and um, the, uh, and there's you get needles in the park and there's an old children's centre down the road, a one o'clock club it was called, and it's been empty for the last four or five years. Why can't we take it on? So by listening, you begin getting new projects. Actually, we did take on the one o'clock club. It's now called Oasis Playspace. It's a children's centre that we've been running for the last half a decade or more. But when you work with those people, then they say, well, you know, there's not a decent secondary school around here. Uh, one that we can get into. There's one for Church of England boys and there's one for Catholic girls, but there's not one for the whole community. So... We approached the Department for Education and said, look, we've got a building here. Can we open a secondary school? And they said, yes. 
it's all more complicated than that, but that's effectively what happened. And then we opened the secondary school. And the secondary school's really flying. In fact, it's become one of the top secondary state schools in the country. And then we said, well, can we open a sixth form? And they said, yes. It took them two years to say yes. But we, they said, yes, and now we, we run a sixth form. And that leads on to other things. Do you, you see, get the point. Plunge in, but go for the low-hanging fruit, the easy-to-do thing. Don't go for something that's incredibly difficult and going to take you three years you will fail at it because you'll run out of momentum choose something that people can do a bit of a challenge but it's achievable and when they're doing that they move on to something else and the more you get involved in your community i guarantee the more political you'll become in the sense that you've talked about it in the sense that you become passionate about the fact why isn't there a decent swing place why isn't there some a decent place for these kids to play football where where where, why, why isn't there a shop that they can afford to shop in? Why are all the prices round here um, catering for tourists and, and, and commuters rather than local people? Get involved, which seems to me to be the core message of, um, of the Bible. You know, the core message of the Bible is redemption, isn't it? It's salvation. Salvation meaning rescue, you know, and, and God's cooperative. So Jesus only ever teaches us one prayer and he says, I always joke and say, that's how you know Jesus wasn't an Anglican. Because if Jesus was an Anglican, he would have left three for every day. <laughs> you know, kind of. But he leaves one prayer and it is, our Father who is in heaven, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. And he says, when you pray, pray like this. And then all the bits about asking for forgiveness and all this kind of come later. But it doesn't begin with, begin with pleading to be forgiven and it etc etc begins with your kingdoms come in let me join in so christian faith christ-centered faith at its very core is incarnational it's mm -hmm. it's don't sit there it's get involved the incarnation christmas comes around regularly doesn't it and we say you know that god became a man that's incarnation and i always think that's a pretty lousy description of incarnation the incarnation for me is god becomes a specific man with a specific colored skin living in a particular village with aunts and uncles and cousins and a mum and dad with a particular job who laughs at particular jokes who weeps with his friends as they as they stand over the grave of someone they love who's died he tells particular jokes he has he is immersed in a community and then he speaks out of those relationships and out of that community and out of the, that commitment. That is incarnation. Well, on that wonderfully hopeful point, thank you so much for being with us today, Steve. That was amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Great to listen to that conversation between you and Steve. And, and Steve is somebody who has lots of interests in lots of different areas. And I wonder, Bethan, what really stood out for you on reflection? In regards to the conversation we had, I think the thing I find the most refreshing is his willingness to admit that he doesn't know, he doesn't pretend to understand everything in regards to theology and that his word is not gospel in regards to when he does sermons and that kind of thing. And that feeds in quite well with the point that Steve was making about the uncertainty in our society about whether we should pursue knowledge or whether we should pursue love and the idea that those two different ideas of what our society should be like maybe aren't totally compatible with each other. 
And I think something that churches, this may be a generalisation, but I think something churches do struggle with is how they can be socially active and politically active and not create division within their own congregations. And I think something that Oasis Trust and Oasis Waterloo do well is that they encourage political action, political thought at the same time as embracing diversity in all its forms, and if that be in regards to um, the more obvious diversities and personal political diversities throughout church life. His focus on love-centred action is quite obvious in the way he speaks and the way he works, um, but it would be so lovely if that could be throughout the whole of our, not only church life, but society in general. And there's a really important point, I think, about what the church can do in society in terms of, you could argue, filling gaps where government services aren't as good as they should be, but also where churches are in a place to act more effectively than public services are. I, I was really struck by the story he told about the the teenager playing snooker and, and losing and, and Steve expecting him to lose his temper, but actually going off and having a conversation with the volunteer and, and spending time together. And that fact that we respond when people help us who don't have to be there, but choose to be there. And I think that's something where the church can offer really powerful and meaningful services because when we act in our community we're not doing so because because we're paid to be there we're doing it because um we know something of the love that god has shown us and and that we are called and and compelled to to act in response to that and so there are ways where churches acting in their communities can do things that the state can't i think one of the things that church work and and church action can do really well is that in the nature of service provision it's focused on the issue and not necessarily on the person as a whole so if someone was in a mental health institution for example the focus would be on on and getting them better and not not necessarily on trying to understand that person in a holistic sense as a as an entire individual rather than just their singular problem if that be mental physical or social and i think something that some of the things that Steve said showed that what churches do best is they they not only embrace people regardless of whatever the issues they have coming in the door, but they can help not only with that, but also in a way that it doesn't feel like a service provision, it feels like a relationship. And there's real power in not just defining people by their problems, but also by their entire selves, because we're, we're all bigger than our individual issues. Um, and we all have issues and I think something churches do really well is look at people as an entire individual not just as a singular problem well it's goodbye from me and Bethan as ever we're really glad to have had you listening and if you have any comments or feedbacks do get in touch with us at the joint public issues team website or comment wherever you're listening to this podcast goodbye (laughs) 